0: The caution is uh, time's a-wasting. It's, uh, it's getting uh, zero dark uh, 30 for, for a lot of folks here.
1: Hey, welcome everybody to this episode of the Rethinking Vendors podcast. My name is Tom Rogers. I'm CEO of VendorCentric. I'm with, uh, as always, almost always, my colleague Paul Schrantz from Vendorcentric. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing great today, Tom. Thank you for having me here. What, what makes
2: you doing so great today? Well, my kids, four of which have never experienced a championship, got to see the Washington Capitals win that Stanley Cup. That's right. That's a, that's a long drought in this town. And,
1: 26 uh, years. 26 years. And not only are we happy for the Capitals' victory, but uh, our guest on this episode is also especially happy because he's a big Caps fan too. So let me introduce Tom Sneeringer. He's a partner at RSM. Welcome, Tom.
0: Thank you, Tom.
1: Awesome. Well, listen, why don't you tell the uh, listeners a little bit about yourself and your practice and what RSM does.
0: Very good. Thanks for that. Um, I'm in the uh, nonprofit group at RSM. I'm an audit partner uh, by training. And um, all of my clients are not-for-profit organizations, primarily 501c3, with a very heavy concentration with organizations receiving federal funds. In fact, when I started in this profession, um, A133, OMB Circular A133, uh, was just coming out. And the partners at my firm at the time uh, didn't want to really learn it, so they got the new kid on the block and threw that information my way. And... um, So we kind of found, I found my way very quickly into the world of federal grants management and have been there ever since.
1: The real thing we're getting together to talk about today is the Uniform Guidance Procurement Standard. If you're listening, this probably impacts you. You know that the Uniform Guidance came out several years ago, but the procurement standards just went into effect for fiscal years beginning in 2018. And uh, we've been doing a bit of a series of roundtables on the topic recently. And, and earlier this week, uh, Tom Sneeringer and myself had the opportunity to do another one to, I don't know, what we have? Maybe 20 folks in the room from all kinds of different yeah. organizations receiving federal funding?
0: No, absolutely. Uh, all cross-section of not-for-profit um, You know, we had associations that received some federal awards, um, relief and development organizations dealing work internationally, and some other domestic charities. um, Cross-section, the only thing they had in common is they got federal funds, and now they need to deal with the new procurement rules under uniform guidance.
1: Exactly. And the the roundtables we were doing several months ago were really focused around kind of educating people around what the Uniform Guidance Standards were. So what do you have to do? What are the regulations requiring? Now that we're in June of 2018, the conversations have really shifted to, how are you doing with your implementation? Because the, the time is over and you've got to really get things going. So I think it was really interesting to listen to the folks that were in the room and hear where people were in the process of, implementing the standards. And I think just, you know, one of the takeaways I came away with was it seems like most folks have done their policy and procedure development by now and and feel pretty comfortable that they have those in place, but they're dealing with um, maybe some of the nuances of the standards that are specific to uh, an issue that is common to them and like subrecipients, which we'll talk about in a second. um, and I think a lot of folks are also trying to figure out, okay, great, I've got my policies and procedures updated. Now what are we going to do to kind of manage all this stuff? What, yeah. what do you think and takeaways you came up with? Yeah,
0: my, my takeaway is um, we had maybe uh, one-third of the room was uh, a 1231 organization that had to adopt back on January 1. Um, they seem to come into the, the session with a list of questions of what they're um, dealing with. Uh, the ones that may be a June 30 or a, a September 30th year end. Uh, I think they were a little more hesitant or trying to soak all it in, but I got the impression they, uh, uh, they may have the policy, but they don't know what they don't know yet. But the 1231s, the uh, very insightful questions, and, and you're right, there were some um, things that we think we should have been hammered out back in 2015 yeah. Uh, yeah. that they're now coming into play because if they took a wrong turn, or the right turn or the wrong turn, they now need to realize that they have to follow procurement if it's a vendor or contractor situation and subrecipient monitoring is subrecipient. So I think a lot more thought going into the distinguishment between the two to know which rules to follow.
2: The, the thing that I really enjoyed observing was the fact that you guys brought those group of people together and that they were able to engage across these organizations because sometimes we all live inside our organization and we we have the mission in front of us that we're working on, but then when you get this regulatory compliance that's external to you, it's all interpretive in some way. There's there's some grays and there's some blacks and some definites. Um, and in the case of this, people were really, as you said, Tom, were able to reach out and ask questions that would help them confirm, Did we are we thinking this the right way, or are there other interpretations of how we should be handling this? Great. I,
0: I don't know if it's a crowd mentality or not, but they, they definitely felt comfortable you know, kind of um, batting around the ideas and kind of coming up with some consensus of what sounds reasonable uh, given definitional language um, within the standards and to come up with something that's workable. And I, I think kind of they may have come in with certain ideas, wanted to kind of uh, throw it out there, see what stuck, what didn't. And I, I think um, they, they got a lot of value out of that, or hopefully they're feeling a little less anxious than when they walked in.
1: Yeah. So So why don't we do that? Let's spend a little bit of time – I think talking about some of the, maybe some of the common themes that were raised in in the round table. And I think the ones that I heard anyway are are pretty similar to the ones I'm hearing when I'm talking directly to our clients as well. So I don't think they were common just to the group that was at the round table, but pretty much across folks that are getting federal funding right now. And one of the ones that we spent quite a bit of time talking about was what you just alluded to, Tom. Was the um, the subrecipient versus vendor slash contractor determination, right? Because as you think about where the whole process starts, that's where it needs to start. Because depending on what your determination is, is going to dictate whether you have to follow all these new, you know, from guidance procurement regulations or you follow the other uniform guidance regulations with regard to sub-recipients, right? Yeah,
0: that, that's right. And um, one example that someone came in with initially was, um, I, I think after the fact, three years after they've already had, had done their award, I think then there was questions coming up by, you know, others in the organization, um, if not by the agency itself, about how did you end up in this category of contractor when your budget didn't necessarily align to that. They think they had a very big subrecipient line on the budget not necessarily contractor Um, I believe they correctly determined that it was a contractor but they may not have done the proper budget modifications to get it all to fit so it really brought the whole questions back well what is it what is it not and so a real good reboot on the whole conversation and made it very clear that the determination is not black and white. Um, there are criteria within uniform guidance that say what, is indi- what may be indicative of a subrecipient situation or items that may be indicative to a contractor situation, but it's very clear that judgment will prevail. And I, uh, my advice to the group was document these considerations. Perhaps have a form, go through the form, get the proverbial scales out and see which way it's going to tip. Um, but then you have a uh, justification and then it should not be subject to scrutiny later on uh, because you uh, dotted your i's, across the T's, unless it's a blatant black-and-white situation where you didn't want it to be subrecipient because you don't want to do all the monitoring and you'd rather uh, go through the procurement, you know, those things will be obvious to the auditors and and uh, perhaps um, inspector generals if they happen to do the audit. But, you know, if you do a good-faith effort in the determination, it should be fine. But then that we got... Further granular questions, and uh, one of the things we were, uh, I don't know if we're stuck on, um, is dealing with can you have a subrecipient situation that calls for cost plus a fee and uh, part of the agreement. And I think all of us in our gut felt, you know, a fee doesn't feel right in a subrecipient situation. That sounds more competitive. Um, we're in a true subrecipient situation where the typical subrecipient you know, uh, the, organis- the pass-through entity has a cost-based award. They're passing it down to another entity, typically another not-for-profit or maybe a governmental, and they usually have the same rules flow down, and we're usually talking cost-type awards. Um, but if you have a situation where they're demanding a fee, are you now in the contractor world and perhaps have to look at the five um, procurement options and which one fits versus uh, going to sub-recipient? And I know there are some agencies that prohibit a fee in this situation. Others may be more silent, but the, the rules seem to indicate it's not typical. Um, and whenever I get to the point where I go through all the regs and go, yeah, I'm still not sure, I think you got a gray area, you know, I'll punt them back to the contracting oh, officer. Right, exactly. <laughs> get, a, yeah.
1: get, get some clarification. That's the best way to find out, right? Yeah. Especially when you've got those types of issues. Um, so, yeah, we had... There's a pretty detailed conversation around that whole whether you can take uh, profit and whether you carve out profit or not, and I think that was uh, a couple folks were really focused on that. The part about kind of the first piece, which is distinguishing between a contractor or a subrecipient, it seemed like, you know, as just a basic baseline of what folks need to do, is at a minimum have those criteria defined somewhere, probably in their policy, right, so that... Uh, everybody who has to make those determinations that's doing procurements within the organization is at least following consistently what the policy is. And then to your point, the criteria aren't black and white, they're gray in many cases. So you still have to make a determination. But if the organization has set those, hey this looks like these are the criteria for determining a subrecipient, these are the cr- criteria for determining a contractor, and everybody's following those consistently through a process, whatever determination they come up with in 99 out of 100 cases probably that should be okay for you guys right? No
0: we should be I mean um, it's all about controls and uniform guidance um, you know has certain requirements you must have appropriate controls that allow you to uh, materially comply with the laws and regulations of the award Um, so to systematize this as much as possible um, is in everyone's benefit and from an auditor perspective if we see a control that's repeatable, a, a situation um, develops, it goes, puts through that filter to see which way it leads and gets documented, uh, yeah, you're, you're golden. And then that's what we need to get them to. And I know there are a few folks were, you know, how far do I take it? I mean, there are certain situations that are obviously you know, a contractor, quote, unquote, using terminology, and you're going out and, you know, buying, you know, paper supplies or in charge into the award, you know, it, clearly it's not a subrecipient situation. But when you're entering into, you know, these contracts slash grants, and it doesn't really matter what you call it, you know, that's where, you know, what do you really have here? Right. And, and having those systems is very important.
2: Right, right. Uh, There was just another thing that popped in my mind. I'd be curious for you guys to share your thoughts on it. Uh, It seemed like there was also a pretty big conversation around soul sourcing. Mm -hmm. Organizations, a lot of people who had consultants were concerned about how do we manage the process if we have a consultant we've worked with for a number of years and those kind of things. So maybe you guys could share your thoughts around what you've dealt with with clients and what your thoughts were in the roundtable itself.
1: Yeah, so I think that's actually a really good one um, because sole sourcing comes up all the time. I was actually just out at a, a large nonprofit organization earlier today, and they said probably 95% of their procurements currently go through sole sourcing. Oh, wow. Yeah, they use a lot of consultants, a lot of contractors, and their program folks have kind of gotten pretty comfortable with, just going out to who they always go out to. So the good news for them is that they only have a, a chunk of their fun uh, of their revenue comes through through federal money. Uh, but for that chunk, they're really going to have to make some some process changes. So I think on the sole sourcing side is you know it's it's pretty straightforward. Um, you really only have four uh, criteria that. If you're spending federal money that allow you to sole source Um, one is if um, there's no if there's only one person that can one person or one company that can do the work right you can sole source it and you've got to kind of make a case for that they're truly the only ones that can do it Uh, another one is if you have a public emergency or exigency that you have to meet Um, a third is that you went you try to go through a competitive procurement uh, but you couldn't go through the competitive procurement uh, or you try to go through a competitive procurement, but you didn't get um, responses from more than one organization or consultant that could do the work. A lot of folks are kind of looking to, yeah. to save them on the sole source. Don't you think?
0: I, I think so. I, I think to your point again, or to the organization you talked with earlier is, you know, it's all about relationships. You know, uh, you worked with certain contractors, certain vendors, you know, independent contractors and you have a familiarity with them and and you want the path of least resistance everyone's got a lot of work to do however the bar that's been raised on everyone with uniform guidance especially in sole source um, it really should be a rare event in the eyes of the government and um, to um, to curtail open competition is contrary to the whole reason they have procurement standards um, so under old OMB Circular A110, it's a little more lax as to what you can uh, do and, and, um, and how you can justify that. Uh, but here the burden will be on the organization. And those two, the two primary ones, other than a, a failed procurement situation in, in terms of the um, um, you know, emergency situation or limited or one person could do it, should be very, very rare. And um, there's only so many uh, organizations doing disaster relief recovery, you know, and, and those things happen. We've you know, recently have had a number of uh, volcano situations, and yeah, you can't hold the process up if you need to get relief supplies and everything. But most of the uh, companies, organizations dealing with this, it's not going to be that situation. So they're either going to have to prove that it's a, a unique situation, only very few vendors can do it, and the, uh, all but one of them are tied up. <laughs> Or they think, okay, let me get the agency to buy into my cause here. <laughs> can they write it into the con- to the agreement? Can uh, we get some other permission? And this is going to be new territory. I'm not sure how the agencies are going to react. Yeah,
1: I don't and, either, yeah.
0: So people ask me, uh, what's the likelihood of doing that? I'm going, hey, we're all in it together here. Um, you know, you can try it.
1: Yeah, no, and I think that um, we have some clients that have said, hey, we're actually told by the funding agency sometimes you guys have to work with these guys this is who we want you to work with so in those cases you're you should be good to go as long as it's documented because they're telling you you have to work with this particular yeah, so. contractor um, in other cases it's hey we really like work, we really like working with this this one particular company they've done a great job in the past doing a good job in the past doesn't necessarily mean that they have gone through a competitive bid, and that it doesn't need to be recompeted. You may end up selecting them again at the end of the day because they truly are the best potential contractor that you could work with. But you still need to rebid it. You can't just go to sole source because you've you've used them specifically in the past. Yeah, right? you used
0: them back at um you know five years ago. You went through a competitive process for a very specific situation. They are the winner, great, but now in 2018, you got a brand new procurement situation, um, and this is where these rules kick in. You've got to follow it. You, there's no grandfathering in um, if it's a brand new situation. So they will have to go through that. And, and after going through it, for a lot of qualitative uh, reasons, they may end up with the same decision, but they'll need to um, open it up and see what else is out there, and then ultimately document those decisions.
1: Yep, yep, totally agree, totally agree. So I was just, you know, thinking about some of the other things that seem to be bubbling, the themes that are bubbling to the top with regard to challenges. I know we did um, together, RSM and Vendor Centric, did a, a joint survey recently. We had about 70 uh, federally funded organizations that responded about how the uniform guidance implementation was going for them with regard to the procurement standards. Um, and one of the things that bubbled to the top for that was um, just the Basically figuring out how they're going to update all of their forms and templates to capture all this information because it's not just a matter of going and changing your policies, it's a matter of actually procedurally how are we going to ensure consistency with how folks are doing this and more importantly when the auditors come knocking, whoever the auditors are, yeah. they're going to look for proof that something was done. So. Um, that seems to be a, um, something that a lot of folks are working on now to figure out how they're going to do some of that, because we're finding different departments, even within the same organization, have their own sets of forms that they're using. If you have overseas locations, a lot of times they're using their own stuff. So, so creating some type of standardization around it and consistency in the, in the types of forms that you use and the templates that you're going to use... I think is a is a really important aspect of getting yourself compliant what do you think
0: oh absolutely and i think to accomplish this this objective and we talked about internal controls and it's all about setting objectives the objective is to be compliant the objective is to follow uniform guidance procurement when it applies have it properly documented and ultimately that you can uh, pass audits from whomever they are um, my recommendation to most of my clients is you need a champion um, because of, you're right. A lot, we're, a lot of these organizations are decentralized, could be um, initiating procurement anywhere in the world uh, or throughout the country. And you need to have that champion that's going to look at the consistency, build the controls, and then uh, you know, certainly the more decentralized you are, the more that this has to lend itself to automated solutions um, and not the proverbial shoeboxes and old filing cabinets, which um, I, I think a lot of times in my experience is you get certain assumptions. Oh, yeah, of course we did all that, and then you ask for it. Uh, we can't seem to find it. And then it really begs the question, did anyone really retain it to begin with or what was there to begin with? Uh, and so it is a big challenge, but you know, having that point person responsible um, to roll this out um, um, I think is their number one key. If they haven't already done that, hopefully they're already down the road on this one, but right. if not, they're, they're getting into that direction. Right,
1: right. And I think in our survey results, it came back that um, about 56% of the respondents, it's accounting and finance that's kind of taking responsibility for, for leading this process of getting compliant with the procurement standards. Um, and about 22% of the respondents said it was procurement. So that's it. that was interesting to me because, like you, I think a lot of our clients are very decentralized in terms of procurement. They don't have a central procurement department. And even if they do, that department sometimes is a little more administratively driven than it is really kind of driving a compliance initiative like that. Um, but And then grants was one of the other big areas is about 13% kind of grants and contracts were the ones that are responsible.
0: Yeah, I think depending on the, the size of the organization uh, depends on, you know, whether there is a separate procurement shop. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the default is accounting. Yeah, just throw it to the accounting. It's, <laughs> it's accounting related, right? Have them do it. Exactly. Uh, but a lot of times they forget that accounting is the record keeper on this one. They're not the initiator. So there's a lot of people with their hands in the process before accounting gets to record that transaction. Um, but, yeah, I, I get it in smaller organizations. you, you know, Who knows it better? Probably the accounting folks understand the rules better, uh, but then they're going to need to drive change throughout the organization.
1: Right, right. So just to follow up, kind of we were talking about forms and templates and the importance of getting those in place, and you had said, and obviously it's filling them out, but the other important part is where all that stuff is going to live. I think that's a good segue into um, thinking about, okay, so I'm a – federally funded organization I've got all my new policies in place I've got all my forms and templates people are filling them out I'm storing them however I'm storing them right now but when an auditor comes in and is going to be looking at that stuff and if I'm the the CFO if I own this or whomever it may be and I'm thinking about what do I have to actually have Mm -hmm. together what needs to be in my you know, my quote-unquote procurement file, whatever that, whether it's a physical file, whether it's a file that lives, you know, on the internet or in a folder somewhere, what are the types of things that you're going to be looking for and that you would recommend to these guys that they, they have that readily available so that they can maintain all that history of procurement and have it in one place?
0: Yeah, it's, you know, and I usually think of decision trees myself, you know, what's the situation, And depending depending where you are on the tree will get you to that right answer. So if I can quote, um, you know, Gil Tran from OMB, you know, we got the bear claw. You know, so that's got five procurement options that you have to choose. And depending on which five you anchor into will dictate the amount of um, documentation that is required. If you're in a micro-purchase situation, there's not going to be much. By definition, they tried to make it easy on you in those areas so that you don't have to do a lot of thought. As long as you can look yourself in the mirror and it's reasonable and necessary, great. But as you move up the chain, especially now when we get to the, um, the small purchases, uh, small purchase level up to the simplified acquisition, you know that's where I think the, the pain is going to be felt because in the old rules, you didn't have to do much here either. Right. Um, now you're going to have to get price comparisons and um, so... How are you going to do that? Is it uh, going to do memos on it, check off, sign off? So you going to do screenshots or you know pieces of paper? You're going to obtain. It, it, every situation is different. Certainly, if you're doing online travel, you, know, you can you know print those out or you know, or, you know screenshot them. Uh, other things may lead to other forms of documentation. Um, but the bottom line is, the auditor's got to go, th- um, got to retrace your thought process from the beginning to the decision that you made, Uh, when I say you, uh, the proverbial of the the organization, for following these rules, and um, it's got to be reasonable documentation. Again, um, if it's not documented, it's not done, despite best efforts, and and we did see that a little bit with the new subrecipient monitoring rules. They do require um, a risk assessment to be performed at the onset of a new subrecipient agreement, and that must be documented. And I remember early on when that got adopted, I'm going, okay, where's the risk assessment? Yeah, 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 we did risk assessment. No, I said, well, no, where is it? Oh, we didn't write it down. Yeah, so there, that could have translated into some findings back then. So oh, I'm, yeah. so we're trying to get that lesson communicated so they're not going to repeat the same situation. Right. Um, but, again, if they're, they they got to really think this from scratch uh, because I think the old way of doing it, when you only had a few procurements that really need a lot of documentation is going to be much different when you fall in on a $3,500 uh, you know, micro to small level, uh, you're going to have a lot more volume coming at you.
1: So as we're working with our clients, a lot of what we're trying to do is to ensure that the forms that they're using really capture all the different data elements that show that history of procurement. So depending on the size, it might be their initial cost estimate that they had to make, it could be you know, who did they include in the solicitation process, uh, somewhere they may even want to note, did they include any small minority women-owned businesses to show that they're actually taking affirmative steps and not just saying that they take affirmative steps? Um, what were the quotes that they got back or the, the pricing that they got back? How did they do their evaluation? And then what was the thinking behind how they ultimately came up and selected the the actual winner at the end of the day? And not all those are really spelled out, again, in black and white in the uniform guidance. The uniform guidance, some of them are like making a cost estimate and things like that. But, um, you know, there's a there's a line in the UG that says to you've got to document the history of procurement. Well, that's pretty broad, right? Yes. I mean, that could mean a lot of different things. So there's a little bit of practicality to this, but... We're, you know we're telling our clients, hey just think about if you wanted if you just wanted to look at something as a good control and to look at how your organization was doing and, and just practices you would expect folks to do anyway, those are probably the things you should be making sure at a minimum you're documenting on your forms right No, uh,
0: no absolutely auditors um we're looking for reasonableness here it doesn't have to be ironclad documentation it's the reasonable steps that you've taken to get this captured and hopefully can you know lead to what we call a reperformance. we can see that um, we can kind of follow the thought process and the conclusions reached um, it does not need to be overkill um uh, but uh, our 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 biggest challenge is when we have nothing.
1: Right, right, right. <laughs>
0: Versus when you try to attempt it. And, and we're usually, if we feel that, okay, I think you made a first good attempt here, but going forward, I uh, think you should tweak it and you know, bring in more of this data or that data, um, then we can live with this and kind of you know, roll. And this is going to a, um, uh, evolve, I think, over the next three to five years. Yeah. Um, until we get the inspector generals out there and going to do some auditing, and kind of overlooking what the, uh, the CPAs are doing, uh, I think we're going to get feedback that says, no, I think you're on the right track, or no, you're, not, you're off a little bit, and we need to do some more FAQ documents to, to really bring this home. Uh, so I think right now, year one, do your best. Um, I, during the uh, session the other day, Tom, you had made uh, very clear about certain language, uh, a lot of the terms must in uniform guidance and must is a requirement and if you read the procurement section how many do you remember how many musts that you've i think you quoted there's over 40 yeah
1: there's more than 40 yeah
0: and so you're you're trying to grapple with all those musts try to get them documented um do your best um but also be open that you may need to tweak going forward um if you, you know, certain areas that are probably there's some musts that are bigger musts than others. Some, some musts will get you maybe a qualified opinion on your in your audit if you fail <laughs> to do it yeah, versus other maybe, uh, you know, minor, more of a hand slap. Um, but I, I think we should be, um, you know, working through this uh, together as much as we can. When I say we, the auditor-client relationship, you know, we have independence we have to maintain, but we're allowed to educate as well. Yeah. And uh, there was one um, one of my clients in the room um, that we were very involved with their development. Not to say that we developed it, but they took ownership. But they shared different draft versions with us as they were going through it, just to get a gut check and get our views on it. And uh, we offered up suggestions. They made some tweaks, and um, and now they're you know, they're about ready to go live on it. And I'm sure more questions will come, but uh, you know, utilize. You know, your network, whether it's fine folks from vendor-centric uh, or RSM or your auto firm or whomever, um, I, I think we are, to Paul's point, developing community here. And, and I think we all are in it together, and trying to get good, good advice out there. But just realize that what we feel now may have to change once the the government kind of weighs in on the review.
1: Sure, but and they up actually update the UG with some of the new stuff that's come out, things like that. But I think um, that's really good practical advice. I think you just gave, and we're vendor We're not auditors. And one of the things we tell our clients is that 99% of the auditors are not out to get you. Uh, Tom Sneeringer is not out to get you. And I know RSM as a firm is not how you guys operate at all. So we're telling them, look, let's not get, don't guess, right? So if you've got a set of policies and procedures you think are compliant, but you want to double check to make sure, talk to your audit partner and, and, and run it by him or her to get their input and feedback. And to your point, you can't do the development because that would be a conflict and you wouldn't be independent anymore, but you can certainly provide directional advice and let them know if things are missing.
0: No, absolutely. And if you actually go to the sections uh, within Uniform Guidance for Procurement, um, clients will ask me, well, what should we be doing? And uh, I direct them right to it. It's online. (laughs) It's uh, free for everyone to, to download and take a look at. And but you got to read it, you know, um, you know. So we're we're very good as a firm of dragging them to water, but we got to make them drink. Yeah. And if you actually read it, and if you get hung up on language, we can help interpret that. Uh, we do have clients on occasion will ask us for, hey, uh, do you have a sample policy you could give us? Um, and uh, we actually um, decline those situations. Uh, we feel this is very tailored. Uh, tailored situation that requires them to take ownership and then build it you know because they're going to have to make decisions is it going to be for federal and even for the non-federal too and i know we got into a big discussion on on that area and uh, last thing we want to do is put a standard template out that only thing they're going to do is search and search for um, uh, the other name of uh, the abc sample org put in their name and say we're done but uh, it, it's not the case. They got to make something that's workable for them, and then to carry it out.
1: Yep. Yep. Exactly. So, so that's that's good stuff. So I think the last thing I just want to touch on briefly is not compliance. I think uh, you know we've talked quite a bit about that, and and folks seem to be moving pretty well in that direction if they're not already there. But really, what one of the other things that we're talking a lot about is that yes. Nearly everybody is looking at procurement, everybody that gets federal funding is looking at procurement right now because of the compliance requirements, but it's it's really been an area that not a lot of folks have looked at very hard in the past, and it's a great opportunity to really thinking about what should we be looking at with regard to how we go about procurement that's not just gets us compliant, but actually makes our whole procurement better and makes us a better organization as a result of it and um just a couple things that have kind of come out that some of our clients are doing is um one of them is uh, there's a more of a movement towards automation and visibility so knowing um not just having file cabinets to store everything but we're working with clients now that you know they've got they've had their contra- for contracts for example that come on the back end of a procurement, right? So you yeah. go through a procurement process, now I have a contract, and there are contractual standards in the UG uh, compliance requirements for, for procurement. And we say, well, how do you guys do your contracting right now? Well, everybody's kind of doing their own thing. Where are all your contracts? Well, we think they're all on the G drive, but some of them live over here. So there's a whole ability as part of this process to really step back and, and not just make it, let me get my policies updated, But let's think about what we're doing here, and are there other opportunities to make things better, like establishing contracting standards, you know, so that we are mitigating risk in contractual documents, and we have clarity around who can sign contracts and to create those types of standards at the end of the day. (coughs) Is there a way we can automate how we're storing and tracking information so we have visibility into the fact that maybe there's... You know, five competitive solicitations going on right now or 25 competitive solicitations going on right now and who's doing them and are they doing them the right way um and then uh on the back end is who's really managing the actual performance of the vendor uh, and not all vendors are created not all contractors and vendors are created equal right so you know your catering contractor you're not going to care too much about but If you're using a vendor that's storing cloud-based, that's using a cloud-based application and they're collecting information for you, storing it, transmitting it, if you have a marketing agency that you're using that's collecting subscribers and they're doing anything in Europe right now with GDPR, I mean, you need to know who those organizations are, you need to assign responsibility internally for oversight and it's not a procurement issue. It's really a risk management issue at the end of the day. And, and that's, if you really boil down in the Uniform Guidance Procurement Standards, that's a lot of what they're truly getting at, which is, how do we reduce fraud, waste, and abuse? And how do we make sure that we've got, you know, the least risky organizations out there doing the work for us? So we make sure that the money we're spending with them, we're actually going to get what we're, we're supposed to get.
0: Yep. The government wants the best bang for the buck. And these rules are trying to keep everyone accountable to do that. But to your point, I mean, it's a tremendous opportunity to rethink, not just even digitize what may have been done manually before, but uh, rethinking the whole flow, the whole process. And to us, going back to the auditors, that is control. I mean, right. and a lot of aspects of control is not just about being compliant, but it's about efficiency. So it's a perfect opportunity to rethink that, uh, build some efficiencies into the process and you know, certainly alone if you're like scrounging um, in scrounging the world for that documentation because the auditors are asking for it when you got it there at the touch of a button in a cloud product yeah it's going to save a lot of time right. and that's just one example
2: and the last thing I was just going to add you guys brought up risk here towards the end of, of this conversation uh, but that I think that is the biggest single thing that, that is facing organizations is They're just now really starting to understand the level of risk that they have with the third-party vendors. So much has been controlled through human resource policies and procedures to ensure that you got the right people on your staff doing all the right things. But when you create a relationship with an external company, a vendor, a contractor, or a subrecipient, risk management is a really critical element of of, uh, what you're doing. And so as Tom is saying here, it's taking the opportunity of this uniform guidance to step back and say, hey, there's some bigger overhanging issues that we could really be addressing right now.
1: So Tom, if there's somebody listening now and they're going through the uniform guidance, whatever it may be, it could be subrecipients still, it could be procurement, um, and they need help with something, what are the types of things that you guys do that, that might be able to reach out to you for?
0: Yeah, um, thanks, Tom. You know, depending if you're an audit client or not, uh, <laughs> right? we are a one-stop. An yeah, we we're, we're a one-stop shop. And um, uh, we are one of the leading firms that uh, actually do uniform guidance audits, um, as, as verified in the uh, Federal Audit Clearinghouse uh, database. Um, so um, I personally uh, do a lot of um, teaching in this area, mm-hmm. um, as well as consulting, uh, looking over policies and procedures, uh, giving advice. Uh, again, the more I can do with uh, non-audit clients, but even with my audit clients, uh, you know, a lot of education here. And uh, my biggest advice then, just from my anecdotally what I see is still the proverbial head in the sand and hoping this will go away. Uh, Every now and then I'll have a client going, have they repealed this yet? Going, no, I'm not holding my breath either. Uh, So let's work on this together. What do we need to do? And uh, because it'll be a lot easier getting on the front end of this than um, doing something or nothing or doing something uh, halfway. And then you're going to find out in the audit process that it wasn't sufficient. And um, as you said before, I don't I don't enjoy giving audit findings, contrary sure. to what people may think. And so um, you know, if we can get ahead of this. Um, all the better, but um, you know anything that uh, individuals need help with, uh, we you know, we have the tools to to get them there. And my only caution is uh, time's a wasting It's uh, it's getting uh, zero dark uh, thirty for for a lot of folks here. Right, right.
1: So if they did need something, how could they contact you?
0: Well, you can uh, contact me. The easiest way is by um, email, uh, tom.snaringer, S. N. E. E. R. I. N. G. E. R. At rsmus.
1: Awesome. Great. If you are still working on all this procurement stuff, if you're one of Tom's clients and he can't help you because there's an independence issue, we're here at Vendor Centric. Or if you just need something uh, to help you automate the procurement process, if you need training around procurement, I mean, that's what we do, all we do every single day. So you can feel free to reach out to me via email. T. Rogers, T-R-O-G-E-R-S, T-R-O-G-E-R-S at VendorCentric.com or give me a call at 240-813-1160. So thanks, Tom. I appreciate you coming out. We'll look forward to hopefully some, uh, some more. Uh,
0: thanks, Tom. Thanks, Paul.